If you'll remember with me, last Lord's Day, we considered the parable of the sower. And we notice an emphasis in that parable on the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ was the sower of that parable, and his seed was the word of God. It was the message that the kingdom has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus anticipates the confusion of the disciples as he continues to teach them. If the kingdom of heaven is here, then why are we still under Roman rule and oppression? If the kingdom of God is now, then why hasn't the Lord promptly destroyed all of his enemies who reject his rule and authority? They're asking, what, what sort of everlasting kingdom is this? which allows opposition to remain completely unchecked. The disciples had certain expectations for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus teaches us this, this parable of the wheat and the tares. Let's read together this parable. Matthew chapter 13. We'll read verses 24 through 30, and then we'll jump over and pick up reading again in, in verse 36. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the, end, at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now come over to verse 36, where Jesus explains this more privately to his disciples. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and, and went into a house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age." The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This parable, it further explains to us the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is here, but it's not yet here in all of its fullness. The kingdom is now, but it's not yet. There is a, there's a provisional character to the kingdom of God. It's here now, but it is to be once for all definitively changed at the end of the age, when Christ comes for that final Judgment. The main point of the parable is this. The consummate kingdom of heaven is delayed until the end of the age, when at that time all of God's enemies shall be destroyed and his saints shall inherit the earth in glory. This morning, as, as we consider this parable, as we consider the final judgment at the end of the age, May this text cause all those here this morning who are outside of Christ to tremble. 
to tremble before the King as we consider the end of the age, as we consider that final harvest when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. For the saints here this morning, brothers and sisters, may this text grant you comfort as you consider the happiness, as you consider the safety that the King provides for you in his everlasting kingdom. He's prepared it for you. May you praise the King this morning who saved you and brought you into his marvelous kingdom. The title of my sermon this morning is, is The Consummate Kingdom Delayed. And we'll open up this parable in three main points. In, in the first place, we'll consider the sowers and the seeds. In the second place, we'll consider the field. And in the last place, we'll consider the harvest. So in the first place, let's consider the sowers and the seeds. Notice with me in verse 24. Another parable Jesus put forth to them. Jesus spoke the parable again to them, to the crowd, the crowd that we saw last week, the crowd that was standing on the shore listening to this rabbi teach. But it's an interesting way that Matthew puts this. He says, Jesus put forth to them. Jesus put a parable before them. It's, it's the same language you would use when, when someone puts forth a food at a, at a table for a guest. Jesus puts forth this parable. It's, it's something to be consumed, digested, something you, you must think about. It's put forth before them. But this meal, this parable, it can only be digested for nourishment. It can only be understood properly through faith. You must believe this. So Jesus begins his parable in verse 24. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who has sowed seed in his field. And he explains this parable more, more privately to the disciples. And before we open this up, I, I want you to notice one thing with me. Look, look at verse 36. Such a minor statement, but, but, but impactful, has great implications for us. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. Brothers and sisters, just that, just stop there. Jesus went into the house with his disciples. What a pastor. Look at, look at the great shepherd in this text. He's delivering these parables to the crowd, and he loves his disciples. And he takes them into a house, and he privately ministers to them. This here, we could say that this is something, something like pastoral visitation. But, but, but look at the pastor, this great shepherd. Something minor in the text, but he did it. He took his time, the king, the God-man, took his time to come alongside these disciples and to instruct them privately in the word of God, making sure that they digested it, that they understood it. Look at the king here. Look at our great shepherd who loves us. Let's continue on, though. Jesus explains what he said about this kingdom of heaven being like a man who sowed good seed in the field. And he says in verse 37, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. Jesus uses this particular title for himself. He is the son of man. And this is somewhat of an ambiguous term and he uses it purposefully. This title, it both reveals and it conceals. In Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man, this is the one who, who comes to establish the everlasting kingdom of God. He comes to destroy Rome, to crush Rome, to establish God's kingdom. But Jesus is not the Messiah that these carnal or these earthly-minded Jews were thinking about. They were looking for, they were looking for an immediate consummate kingdom. So Jesus reveals something of himself here and something of his kingdom in these parables. He's, he is the powerful Messiah. He is the Son of Man. But he's also the one who comes in humiliation to be humiliated and put to death. He is the divine Son of Man who comes in the clouds. But he's also the suffering servant, the meek one. He comes to earth as a man, as a, as a little baby. He's our suffering servant. And you see what Jesus is doing here. 
by referring to the Son of Man, what he's doing here, he's, he's pulling new things out of the old. He, he talks about a scribe who pulls new things out of the old later in this chapter in verse 52. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's showing how he fulfills the old. The Old Testament reveals Christ in promises, in types and in shadows. These are like, you can think of these promises and these types and shadows, you can think of them as like a, a silhouette, they're outlining a man. They're outlining the son of man. And what Jesus does, and he comes to earth, he simply just walks into that silhouette. I am the son of man. This is what he's doing. He's saying all of these things in the Old Testament, they outlined me, they pointed to me, and the son of man is here. This is what Jesus is saying. The son of man is here. But he did this. He taught about the kingdom in a way that these, these earthly-minded Jews did not expect. His parables have a way, these parables have a way of bringing forth new things out of the old. They're there in the old, but he's revealing them and making them known now. These are things promised in the Old Testament. But again, their fulfillment in Christ can only be discerned by faith. So Jesus says here that he is the sower. The Son of Man, the Messiah, is the sower just as he was in the previous parable. But this time, the seed's different. His seed here, it's not the pure word of God sown or, or preached into the world like it was in the parable of the sower, no. His seed here is the sons of the kingdom. It's the children of God. His seeds are the children of God. They are the sons and the, and the daughters of the kingdom because they've been born again by the word of God and by the spirit of God and, and ushered into his kingdom. God is their father. They now have the rights and, and the privileges of the kingdom. They are offspring of God by virtue of earth. You can read it this way. They are the kingdom sons, possessive. They are the kingdom sons. They belong to the kingdom because they belong to the king. The king possesses them. He owns them. The king rules in their hearts. Christ and his spirit reign in their minds, emotions, and their wills. And so they are citizens of his kingdom. But Jesus continues in verse 25. He says, But while men slept, his enemies came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And he explains this in verse 38. The tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. You see, now here, now we're introduced to two seeds and to two sowers. In this parable, there, there's the good seed and there's the bad seed. There's the son of man who sows and there's the enemy, the wicked one who sows. Just as the sons of the kingdom have God as their father, so too the sons of the wicked one have the devil, the adversary, as their father. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ reigns in the heart of his offspring, so too the wicked one reigns in the heart of his offspring. And what separates these two seeds, what distinguishes them, is their personal relationships. In the first case, the sons of the kingdom are identified by their personal relationship to Jesus. And in the other case, they're identified by their personal relationship to the evil one. The sons of the kingdom belong to the king. The sons of the wicked one belong to him. And we must say here that one of the things that this parable teaches us is that the devil has real power and influence. He's ultimately controlled by God, who's, of course, all-powerful, almighty. But this parable teaches us that the evil one has a real power. The wicked one rules in the hearts. He reigns in the hearts of all unbelievers. He's their father. As the Lord Jesus Christ said to the unbelieving Pharisees, he said, he said, if God were your father, you would love me. But you are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you wish to do. 
You see, see, man is born totally depraved. Man naturally, his father is the devil. And so he practices the desires of his father. But this parable too, it shows us that evil and sin are not caused by God. How so? God is not the author of evil, but the evil one is the author of evil in this parable. When the text tells us, when the men were sleeping, the enemy sowed the tares. He sowed evil, and he sowed the sons of the evil one. And so we can say that sin in the world, it owes its origin to the evil one. Sin in the world, it, it technically does not have an efficient cause. It only has a deficient cause. Sin, brothers and sisters, is a, it's a privation of the good. It's a lack of goodness and beauty. It technically doesn't have existence, but it's a privation of true and perfect existence. It's the distortion of goodness. It's the deprivation. It's the, it's the lack of goodness and truth and beauty. That's what sin is. But nevertheless, this text teaches that the sin has an origin, and it originates with the devil. He tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. They fell. And at that moment, their sin and their transgression against God, they became children of wrath, children of Satan. For they rejected God as their father, and they listened to Satan as their father, who is the father of lies. But in the cursing of Satan, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the Lord promised to Adam and Eve and to us a gospel. He promised that there would be enmity between these two seeds that we're reading about. There'd be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And all through history, this enmity between the seeds, we see it. We see it all through history. The seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 is the good seed here. They're the sons of the kingdom. The seed of the serpent is the bad seed. They're the tares. They are the sons of the wicked one. But Genesis 3.15, besides just telling us about these two different seeds throughout all of human history, they tell us about a singular seed. God says to Satan, he, singular, shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. There's a promise of a singular seed of the woman. And that title there, even, Seed of the Woman, that, that hints to us even that this one would come of a virgin. He's the seed of the woman. He's the son of man, yes, but he's also the seed of the woman. And Jesus, what he's saying here is that this seed has come. The son of man has come. He's here. This is the first thing Christ communicates in the parables. The good sower is the son of man. The kingdom has been inaugurated, begun. And actually, the original language in verse 24, it communicates to this, communicates this to us. You can't see it in the New King James, but the original actually says, the kingdom of heaven has become like a man who sowed good seed in his field. It has become. It's, it's past. It's perfected. It's come here. The first point Jesus makes is that the kingdom of heaven has come. It's here. And in this statement... There's an implicit warning to the listeners. There's an implicit call to repent and believe in the king who's come. And so this parable, for us, even from the very first words of Christ, it becomes to us a call to repentance. And Jesus put this parable before his hearers. And here it is this morning. It's before you. It's put forth before you to hear it, to digest it, to think about it. How are you hearing these words? In the parable of the sower, you'll remember, the main question was, how do you hear? The main question of this text is, who are you? Who are you? Which seed? Are you a son or daughter of the kingdom? Or are you a son or daughter of the wicked one? Who are you? Take heed this morning. This is the word of God. Pay attention. 
The word of God has been put before you. God and his Christ have been put before you. How will you respond to him? How are you responding to him? Are you content in your sin? Is your father the devil? Are you perfectly comfortable living like the wicked one and as the text, living for the wicked one? We're not inclined to think this way, but there are only two seeds. There are only two fathers. There is no middle ground. You can't say, you can't say that you hate the evil one, but then live like him. And you can't say that you love God as your father, but then live like the devil. And just like the parable of the sower, here we see that you're known by your fruit. Who are you? The good seed here is the wheat. It grows up. It, pr- it produces a good crop. These tares, they're a weed called darnel. They grow up for a while. They look even indistinguishable from the wheat for a while until they produce their fruit, until they produce their crop. Yeah, it looks like the wheat, but it's, it's these little black pieces of grain. And you know what? They're useless and they're poisonous. This weed, these tares, their fruit is poison to human beings. And so it is with the sons of the evil one. Your fruit is poison. Who are you? Which seed? What is your fruit like? That's what Christ is asking us. Are you a tear and a weed? Is your fruit useless? Is it poison? You may not think that the fruit of your life is poison, but unless that God is your father, the fruit of your life is ultimately death. Your sin will kill you. Just as Satan has real power, so you too have real power. You have real influence. If you're outside of Christ, your sin has the power to kill. Think about yourself first. The wages of sin is death. We see that at the end of this parable. It's ultimately death. The harvest brings forth death to the tares, to the sons of the wicked one. The tares will be gathered together and burned in the fire. So think about yourself, but also think about those around you. We all have relationships. Think about your family. Think about your friends, your loved ones. Your fruit is poison to yourself and to others. If you're outside of Christ, your sin is killing you. And it may be killing those around you. It may lead to your own eternal destruction But Satan, who has real power, may be using your fruit to lead to the destruction of others. There are consequences to sin. Look how Satan used Adam and Eve. Adam, he tempts Adam to fall, to sin. Death comes upon all mankind. All of creation groans now. Look how Satan used Adam. How is Satan using you? He has real power. Sin has consequences. Sin rarely only ever affects the individual. It has consequences. So who are you? The text is asking us, it's begging the question, who are you? Are you a son of the king or a son of the wicked one? Consider the end. Consider the harvest which will come to you. But consider also how your sin is affecting you now and and your loved ones. The the implicit call is here. Repent and believe in Christ. He will bring you into his eternal kingdom. And you will bear much fruit. 30-fold, 60, 100-fold. Just as the parable reveals something about the nature of the kingdom, it reveals also something about you. It reveals something about me. These are the seeds These are the sowers and the seeds. But let's consider in the second place the field. Now I want to consider this, the field, as a main point. Because the way in which we understand the field, the way in which we interpret it, has a tremendous impact on the way in which we interpret and apply the entire parable. 
We have seen that the man has sown his good seed in the field, okay? And we've also seen that the enemy has sown his seed, his bad seed, in the field. It's the same field. And now the first thing Jesus explains to us in verse 37 is he says that the man is the son of man. But the very next thing he says, the second thing he wants us to understand is this. The field is the world. And this makes sense to us. This makes sense with all we've been saying about, about Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, the context of these parables. Jesus has come to inaugurate his kingdom in the world, but there are still yet enemies. So Jesus uses this parable to explain the, the condition of the world until the, the final consummation, until the very end. Until Christ returns, the righteous and the wicked, they live together. They dwell in the same world. They are rooted together politically. They're rooted together socially. They're even found within the same family. They both experience God's common grace. The sons of the kingdom and the sons of the wicked one, they dwell together in the world. And this is exactly what the disciples had a hard time understanding again. Previously in Matthew 12, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And then he withdrew himself from the crowd. But then they all followed him. And he says that he healed them all. This large crowd followed him for his miracles. And he healed them all. And then someone brought to him a demon-possessed man, a blind man, a deaf man. And Jesus healed him. And the crowd stood around, standing in amazement. They said, could this be the son of David? But the Pharisees accused him of casting out the demon by the power of Satan. And Jesus replies and he says this, very important. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. That's how Jesus explains his working of miracles. Jesus here explains in words what he's doing in deed. He is the one who's come to bind the strong man, the evil one. He has come to defeat Satan and the kingdom of darkness. But if this is so, why is it not yet definitive? Why isn't it complete? If the, if the strong man is bound, why isn't his kingdom here in all its fullness? And Jesus is answering that very question. And he essentially says to us, the kingdom, the consummate kingdom is delayed. So not only is it clear, you can see that it's not only clear from, from, the, from the context that, that Jesus, um, that, pardon, that the field is the world, but it's also clear, obviously, from his explicit statement. Jesus says, the, the field is the world. But I want to say, I need to draw your attention to this, that unfortunately, in the, in the history of the church, this parable has been misinterpreted. And because it's been misinterpreted, it's then misapplied. You see, if you don't interpret a passage correctly, the odds are you will apply it incorrectly as well. And the major misinterpretation of this parable is to say that the field is the church. Many good and faithful men have misinterpreted the field to be the church. And this wrong interpretation has led to very serious misapplication. I'd like to just mention two of them. You've likely, you may have likely heard these, these, these misapplications or misinterpretations, but if not, you, you may come in contact with them in the future. Our, our Presbyterian brothers and our, our Pado-Baptist brothers, the first error is to say, they, they say that this parable, they use this parable to justify infant baptism. If the field is the church, they say that we will always have a mixture of believers and unbelievers in the church. And now they hold to pedo baptism for, for other reasons, but they use, they, they come to this parable specifically, oftentimes, they come to this parable to justify infant baptism. They, they see the field as the church, and they justify baptizing unbelieving infants into the membership of the church. Though they have no credible pro profession of faith, nor are they able to profess, they say, that they say to us that we must be content with an impure church, with a mixed church. 
This is just the way it will be until Christ returns and sorts all things out. And so they say that we should, be, we should not prohibit. We should not prohibit unbelieving infants and children from coming into the membership of the church through baptism. But this is wrong. The field's not the church. The field's the world. Jesus says this explicitly. The field is the world. And we know from the other teaching of the New Testament that, that the church is to be made up of visible saints, those who make professions of faith, and those who live like it, those who profess to be sons of the kingdom and live like sons of the kingdom. Well, the second misapplication of this text, it's, it's not confined just to Presbyterians, but you may find these in the more liberal circles. The second misapplication of this parable is to say that we should not discipline members of the church. If a member of the church has sinned and continues in sin, then allow them to remain in the church. For the Lord, they say, will sort out the rest at the final judgment. So this parable has been used to argue against church membership and excommunication. And brothers and sisters, excommunication actually seeks to purify the church, yes, but it seeks to restore that brother or sister to the church. But some have used this parable to argue against the clear, didactic teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 18, which commands to us, church discipline. You'll see here that, that both of these applications for, for paedal baptism and for a lack of church discipline, they're, they're wrong. They're errors. And they're, they're wrong because they flow from a wrong interpretation of the field. That's why this is, this is an important point. The field is not the church. Jesus says the field is the world. Now look with me at the text beginning in verse 39. Let's, let's read verse 39 to the end, and, and I want you to pay attention to two phrases. The first phrase is end of the age, and the second word or phrase is kingdom. Verse 39. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire... So it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the Son of the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I, I want to draw your attention to verse 41. Jesus says, They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Now, those who interpret the field to be the church, they say, look, Christ, the, the lawless, the sons of the wicked one, they're in his kingdom. Christ pulls them out of his kingdom. His kingdom must be the visible church with a mixture. But again, they, they miss interpret, they misunderstand Jesus' use of the word kingdom in this, in this verse, in verse 41. Jesus here is clearly referring to the harvest, to the end of the age, twice immediately before this sentence. Jesus refers to the end of the age. In verse 41, Jesus is referring to the consummate kingdom, to the final kingdom come on earth. The parable of the wheat and the tares teaches us, it teaches us about the eschatological nature of the kingdom. When Christ returns, he will purify his kingdom. And his kingdom at that point will extend to all of creation. At that point, the king, Christ's kingdom will be the whole world. Paul says that, that Christ is, it, he says that all things are subjected to Christ now, but he also says in another place that all things will be subjected to Christ. You see, there, there's, a, there's a provisional character to the kingdom of God. It's growing. At the end of the age, Christ's kingdom will be complete. And then, then he will pull out those who offend, those who practice lawlessness, and he'll cast them into the furnace of fire. But this is exactly where the mystery lies in the parable. This parable is not about the visible church. It's not about church discipline. It's about God's kingdom in the world. 
in this present evil age. Dr. Carson, one commentator, he summarizes it this way. Listen to what Dr. Carson says. The parable does not address the church situation at all, but explains how the kingdom can be present in the world while not yet wiping out all opposition. That must wait the harvest. The parable deals with the eschatological expectation, not with ecclesiastical or or churchly deterioration. He says elsewhere that, that the mystery is bound up not with the intermingling of good and evil per se in the church or the world, but the mystery is bound up in the preliminary or inaugurated form of the kingdom that is not yet the apocalyptic and the totally transforming kingdom belonging to the end of the age. The kingdom is in the world now. But the consummate kingdom is delayed. This is the mystery of the kingdom. And you see, again, this this is why the servants are so surprised. In verse 27, or is it verse 37? No, in verse 27, they say, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? If the kingdom is here, how can there be evil in the world? And this, too, is why the disciples, they come to Jesus in verse 36. They say to him, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. They call it the parable of the tares of the field because that's the confusing part. If the kingdom is here, how can there be tares? How can there be evil? Like the servant said in verse 28, do you want us to go and gather them up? But the Son of Man says, no. The kingdom has come, but not yet consummate. It's not yet consummate. Which brings us to our third and final point. We've considered the sowers and the seeds. We've considered the field. And now let's go on to consider the harvest. At first, the wheat and the tares are indistinguishable. But verse 26 says, When the grain has sprouted and produced the crop, then the tares also appeared. This here was no fault of the masters or the servants. The enemy had come while they were sleeping, while men sleep, it says. And this enemy deceptively sowed the seeds, the tares. And these tares, as I've said, are indistinguishable from the wheat until the crop produces They're distinguishable only by their fruit. And so it is with the children of men. But as soon as the tares are identified, the immediate reaction of the servants is to purify the field. This too was the natural response of the Jews. Should not the Messiah promptly destroy all those who do not submit to his authority? But when the owner is asked, If the servant should go and gather up the tares, he replies and says, no, wait for the harvest. In this particular detail, this particular detail finds no parallel interpretation in Christ's words to us between verses 37 and 43. We don't see see Christ's private interpretation of this detail. But... If we were to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, I think we can come to a pretty good conclusion of, of, of asking the question, why wait till the harvest? In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says that scoffers will come saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is, the, where is Christ's return? Where is his kingdom? And Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if we were to answer the question or ask the question, why wait until the harvest? The answer from Peter is that the Lord is still saving his elect. The sons of the kingdom have not reached their fullness. The Lord does not wish that any of his elect should perish. He's still waiting for them. He's still patient for them, waiting for them to be born, to be born physically. 
and to be reborn spiritually. And all of this is according to the eternal counsel of God. It's according to his good pleasure. Peter then in that text, he goes on to speak about the coming day of the Lord. And this too is the focus of the harvest in Jesus' teaching. The harvest is at the end of the age. It's the final judgment of all men and all angels. The tares will be gathered and burned in the fire. The Lord will send out his messengers, his, his angels, to gather all things that offend and all of the lawless, and he will cast them into the furnace of fire. But the righteous, he says, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. You see here in these words from the Lord Jesus Christ, we see an allusion to the prophet Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets. Zephaniah begins his book with a call to repentance, and the Lord speaks through Zephaniah and says, I will consume the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. This is exactly what Jesus says, that the Lord will consume all things that offend and all of the lawless. It's exactly what Jesus says. And Zephaniah says also in his, in his book, his short book, he has this implicit call to repentance. He says, gather yourselves together like stubble. Zephaniah, the Lord through Zephaniah says, gather yourselves together like stubble for the fire, for the fierce anger of the Lord on the day of the Lord. Zephaniah, Zephaniah there, he's prophesying of the great cosmic and eschatological day of the Lord when the Lord would come to his mountain to judge the wicked. And this is exactly what Christ speaks about here. Christ, the harvest here, is the great cosmic and eschatological day of the Lord. Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. And observe four things with me very briefly. Observe what Jesus says about this final judgment. The first thing we can say is that the wicked and the righteous are sure to be separated. Their separation is sure. It's, it's certain. It will happen. Second, we can say that, that they will be separated without any chance of error. There's no place to hide from the Lord when he sends his angels. The separation will be perfect. Third, the separation is it's without any possibility of reunion. This separation is fixed. It's final. When the Lord comes on his great day, the righteous and the wicked shall be separated eternally. And finally, notice the two opposite ends. The wicked shall be burned with unquenchable fire. They shall be cast into the furnace and consumed. They shall wail and gnash their teeth. But the righteous shall be gathered safely, happily into his barn. They shall shine in purity, in undimmed glory forever. And this opposite and ultimate judgment is what the disciples expected immediately at the coming of Christ in his eternal and everlasting kingdom. But Jesus teaches us that the kingdom is here. The kingdom has been sown, but the consummate kingdom is delayed. The kingdom in all its glory is still coming. The kingdom is now, but it's not yet. Jesus tells us, my, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, brothers and sisters, Jesus' kingdom is not like the earthly kingdoms of this world. All earthly kingdoms, they come and go. They all eventually perish. But Christ's kingdom is everlasting. It's a spiritual, it's a, it's a heavenly kingdom. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And I mean that with a capital S. It's a spiritual king kingdom. Christ rules his kingdom by his word and by his spirit. 
He governs all things for the good of his church, as we've just considered in the previous hour. His kingdom is, is most clearly seen now, ruling in the hearts of individuals, in the hearts of his people who submit to his authority. The kingdom of God at present, right now, it's more of a rule than it is a, a concrete realm. But there will come a time at the end of the age, this is the promise of Christ to us, that there will come a time at the end of the age when Christ's kingdom will be clearly manifest for all to see. He will purify his consummate kingdom. He will separate the wheat from the tares, the sons of his kingdom from the sons of the wicked one. This is the meaning of this parable, of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And so let's conclude this afternoon and apply this to ourselves. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus says, the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. The sons of the kingdom are declared righteous. He calls them, he calls us, the church, the righteous. We are declared righteous because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by faith. If you are in Christ, you are the righteous. But you are also the righteous because you do righteousness. The sons of the wicked one are marked by their unbelief and their lawlessness. But the sons of the kingdom are marked by faith and righteousness. And so the question is, is God your father? Are you marked by faith and righteousness? Because if God is your father, if you are the righteous, you have the promise of glory to inherit the earth in glory. You shall shine forth in undimmed glory in the presence of the one who is light himself. You will dwell in glory in the presence of the king forever. Jesus' exhortation here to the faithful, to the righteous, his exhortation here is to remember God, hope in God, trust in God. And then he also says to us here, wait for God. The consummate kingdom is delayed. Hope in God. Wait for him. Be patient and wait for that glory. There's coming a time when all stumbling blocks, all wickedness, all temptations to sin will be wiped away and all things will be new. Take comfort in God. Consider who you are, the church. You're a son or daughter of the king. God's your father. You're citizens of his kingdom. And he loves you as his children. Take comfort, dear saints. He loves you. He cares for you. He keeps you safe until that great day. And you will enjoy eternity for him, with him. Perfect blessedness. Perfect happiness. But for the unbeliever here this afternoon, those outside of Christ, take heed. This is the call. Take heed. Consider who you are. There's no middle ground, as we said. You're either a son of the kingdom or you're the son of the wicked one. A seed is known by its fruit. If your fruit is useless like the darnel, if it's poison, if you practice lawlessness and the desires of your father, take heed. Just as the reward for the righteous is real, so too is the punishment for the evil, for the evil ones. It's real. It's an everlasting punishment. The wages of sin is death. The punishment for sin is hell without end. And so repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And who knows? Who knows when the king will return? The day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. And the Lord says, I will utterly consume everything. The stumbling blocks along with the wicked. Is that you? Who are you? Consider who you are. This parable this afternoon has been put before you. Think about it. Meditate on it. 
If you believe in Christ, this is nourishment for your soul. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, this should be nourishment for your souls. Come to Christ in faith if you're outside of him. Believe in Christ. He'll make you a citizen of his kingdom. He'll make you to shine forth as the sun in glory. His kingdom is here. It's here now. He rules in the hearts of his children. Submit yourself to the king who alone can forgive you of your sins. Dear friend outside of Christ this afternoon, it is a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Consider who you are. If that's you, if you're a sinner, that's the only qualification. Christ came to save sinners. Come to Christ in faith. Submit to him. Submit to the king who has come and and who indeed is coming again. Let's call on the Lord. Our God and our Father, how we thank you for the kingdom of Christ, our King. We thank you, Father, that in, in the fullness of time, you sent forth your Son, born of a woman, born of a virgin, to come and to, to live the perfect life as a man, who came to, who as that seed of the woman, as the Son of Man, the Messiah, that long-expected Messiah. God, we thank you for Christ's work. We thank you for his person. And God, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit who has applied that redemption to us, to the church. And God, we pray that you would continue to grow your kingdom in this world. Father, for those outside of Christ, cause them to repent and to believe in the gospel that has been preached here today. Grant them faith. Cause them to be sons of the kingdom by your word and your spirit. Father, we pray your kingdom come for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.